In this episode, we're going to talk about the importance of seeing your compliance program through the government's eyes. The DOJ fraud section recently released its latest update to their guidance on the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. And while it doesn't represent a major rewrite, it does provide clarity on the government's expectations on things like post-merger integration, continuous program improvement, and compliance's access to relevant data sources needed to drive the program. Joining me today is Chuck DeRoss. Chuck is a partner and co-leader of Morrison Foster's investigations and white collar defense practice. He previously served as a deputy chief in the DOJ fraud section where he led the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act unit. Welcome, Chuck, and thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. Sure. So, uh, Chuck, during your tenure at the fraud section, you were one of the main authors of the FCPA resource guide, which is, uh, you know, as most people know, it's a joint publication of the DOJ and the SEC published in late 2012. And while the federal sentencing guidelines have been out there for a long time, the guide really represented a change in terms of the government providing somewhat of a blueprint for companies to follow with regard to their compliance program. And uh, nearly eight years later, it, it continues to serve as a desk reference for many compliance officers. How important is it for companies to demonstrate that they've factored the guide and other authoritative guidance uh, into the design and impl implementation of their compliance program? Well, I, I think it's absolutely critical. Um, both because when the government, whether it's the U.S. government or the U.K. or or Brazil, I mean, there, there are many different uh, compliance guidances out there now uh, from different governments. Uh, once they put them out, they expect that uh, you know, the, the community of businesses will review them and will sort of, you know, act accordingly. And so watch out for what you ask for once you get it, like guidance. Uh, then, you know, I, I certainly believe that DOJ and SEC will hold companies accountable uh, and, and against those measures. And so I think it's incredibly important. Interestingly, you know, back now quite some time ago, as you say, the guide came out uh, about eight years ago. You know, when we were putting it together with our counterparts at the SEC at the time, you know, one of the things that, that was actually debated was whether or not to have at all any kind of a chapter or a section on compliance. And, the, and ultimately, of course, the decision was made to, to have the hallmarks of compliance included in the guide. But it wasn't necessarily something that everybody agreed that the Department of Justice should actually be involved in. Ultimately, history has shown that it's been very helpful. It's been you know, received in a positive way by the business community. And then you know, since then, DOJ in particular has issued a series of additional guidance and then certainly the evaluation of corporate compliance programs in April of 2019. And as you indicated, just a, a very recent update in June uh, 2020 to uh, to that guidance. And so I think you see a progression on the, on the government side as well, which was initially some circumspection about whether they should be doing this at all. And now you actually see them uh, getting uh, sort of further into that process. And I actually think that if you were to look at the hallmarks of uh, corporate compliance, I actually think that the most recent guidance put out by DOJ really shows that progression and builds on that and incorporates not just you know, those hallmarks, but also references to the principles of federal prosecution business organizations, as well as other compliance guidance documents. Uh, as well as the sentencing guidelines. So all of those things are now taken into account and are part of it. And because of that, 
you absolutely positively must review those documents. These are original source materials put out by DOJ, certainly also used by SEC. And you know, I've been in meetings, compliance presentations with the government past six months, and uh, the government will pull out the document. So you know, back then it was the April 2019 document. Certainly they're using it. Uh, and if they're using it, I think companies should make sure that they're not just familiar with it, but have actually done an analysis about how would they answer the questions that are contained, for example, in the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. And I would I would recommend doing that now. Do it during a sunny day, those to a rainy day when you're actually in front of the government to make sure you're prepared. So uh, absolutely critical certainly worth undertaking. And it doesn't necessarily need to be an incredibly expensive venture for a company to do that. I just think it's incredibly wise and prudent. And, uh, and if you do it you know, today, uh, you'll certainly thank yourself for having done it tomorrow. All those are really great points. And I, I hadn't realized, I don't, I don't know that we've ever talked about this in the past, that uh, the hallmarks uh, uh, almost didn't make the cut. You know, I, I think that as you said, uh, in retrospect, the, the hallmarks of, uh, are, are probably the most often quoted section of the FCPA resource guide. So that's exactly right. And look, I think it was a legitimate debate to have, which was, should prosecutors really be you know, in the business of providing guidance on compliance? And ultimately, the, the thought process was that, uh, I think is Rob Kazami, uh, who at the time was the director of enforcement for the FCC, you know, as, as Rob had said, before you start writing speeding tickets, you should post the, the speed limit. Yeah, I thought it was a fair comment, which is because DOJ and SEC are going to be judging companies on their compliance program in making certain important decisions, for example, exercising discretion whether to bring a matter, what form to bring that matter in, what the penalty would look like, uh, what kind of compliance requirements may be imposed on the company uh, after the resolution is over, such as reporting requirements versus a monitorship. These are all incredibly important determinations, and they are guided by the government's assessment of a company's existing compliance program at the time of the problems, as well as at the time of the resolution. So given the importance of those factors, uh, it seemed only fair to tell companies you know, what criteria were that they're going to be judged on, and so ultimately it was included. And I, you know, in the last eight years, uh, I think the department uh, and the SEC have gone a long way in actually uh, making that initial guidance much better, more comprehensive, uh, so that companies have an ability to look at it and really make more detailed assessments about their program against sort of the sharp relief of that guidance. Really useful information. I, I also like the. <laughs> the Rob Kazami remark, that's, that's pretty funny. Uh, you know, how do you hold people accountable uh, if you're telling them what the expectations are? No, it's a really good point. So as you mentioned, the guide recast, you know, what you know had been uh, referred to as the elements of an effective compliance program as hallmarks. One important hallmark is commitment from senior management and a clearly articulated policy against corruption. It's more than just a commitment, though. Uh, that's being talked about. It, it's really about senior leadership understanding the risks and instilling an ethical culture. How much should senior leadership know about the compliance risks that are facing the organization and, and how outspoken should they be on compliance being topics, you think? It's a great question. Part of it is obviously there's sort of the tone, the top component, as well as making sure that the senior managers are engaged and understand what the risks are that face their business. And so from the tone perspective, 
you know, what I will say is a practical piece of advice to companies is it really matters to the department and I think the SEC that the company express through senior managers the view of the company with regard to compliance and integrity. I have seen firsthand the impact that, for example, video from the CEO or the chief compliance officer or the general counsel on topics of ethics and compliance, uh, I've seen what that impact can have in a meeting with the government. And I've, I've been there where you know, the companies, were, we actually uh, had a video and we played it for the government as part of a compliance program. And you know, it, it can be impactful. The government sits there and they see the CEO wearing a sweater, sort of talking you know, in, in passionate terms about you know, uh, conducting business with integrity, making sure that uh, the company follows its highest ideals in uh, pursuing business globally, that there, you know, there are no exceptions to those rules in the code of conduct. It can really have a fantastic impact. The opposite is also true, which is if you don't have messaging from the C-suite on these topics, certainly the government will ask, why is it that nobody thought in the last five years that it was important enough to convey the, this kind of a compliance messaging? You know, it doesn't have to be a video. It could be in an email or you know, as part of you know, an all-hands meeting or those kinds of opportunities in which there's a chance for senior managers to engage with the company, maybe annual meetings or large gatherings of sales agents or the like within the company. These are opportunities to create a record, uh, not just deliver the message, but also contemporaneously create a record that if the unfortunate circumstance is that you have to be in front of the government, that you can demonstrate that the company really was taking this seriously, was trying to get this message out, and was consistent with how they were doing it. Incredibly valuable, both in doing it in the first instance, but being able to present that to the, the department or the SEC down the road, whether that's a, a six months or a year or five years from now, that you have this consistent messaging, absolutely critical. And by the way, not a heavy lift. It is not difficult to prepare a short script for a video or to insert some compliance messaging in a speech given at an all-hands meeting, those kinds of things. Uh, relatively easy to do and incredibly important down the road if you ultimately need to rely on that. Uh, so that's the first part. The second part is senior leadership knowing about the risks faced by the company. That's absolutely critical because they're going to be making important decisions about the resources that will be devoted to the compliance program and the internal controls you know, functions in order to mitigate what the, the risks are that the company faces. And if they don't know what the risks are, then it's certainly a much more difficult calculus uh, in order to figure out what are the right resources to put towards those risks in order to mitigate them. And that's not just throwing people at it. It's not just about personnel, but it could be about technology, for example, uh, and the, the appropriate deployment of technology or other kinds of programs, or even uh, decisions to use third-party vendors for certain uh, important uh, compliance uh, program components, such as a hotline or third-party vetting or you know, various tools that people can use, uh, including on their on their smartphones for gift child entertainment processing, for example. So in order to make those informed decisions, they certainly need to understand 
what the risks are that the company is facing and how the company is currently dealing with efforts to mitigate those risks. So incredibly important on both topics. Uh, those are great you made. And, you know, I mean, and, and how does one advocate the position that you've got an effective compliance program if leadership can't clearly articulate the, the risks on which the program was based and how, at least at a high level, the company's going about mitigating those risks? Because I, I really do think everything flows from that. And if, you know, the, the leadership, you know, hasn't taken the time to really educate themselves on, on the risks that are kind of underlying the program's design, and, you know, you risk it ringing hollow with the government if they come in and are, you know, looking at it through a critical lens. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. You're exactly right. So, Chuck, uh, Deputy Attorney General Brian Benskowski issued a memo providing guidance to the factors that prosecutors should consider in determining whether a monitor should be appointed in, in, a, in a criminal case. The memo poses the question, you know, whether remedial improvements to the compliance program and internal controls have been tested to demonstrate that they would prevent or detect similar conduct in the future. Um, can you elaborate on what type of testing the government is looking for here? Sure, sure, absolutely. So first of all, in, on the memo itself, you know, I know that there was a lot of you know, commentary after it came out in people's uh, judgments one way or the other about whether it was encouraging or discouraging the use of monitors. You know, I actually don't think that it was designed to encourage or discourage. I think it was designed to provide greater insight into the thought process and the criteria that the government uses making that decision. So I don't think it was sort of pro or anti monitor. I think it was simply trying to elaborate on what was there and provide a roadmap, if you will, for prosecutors to consider the circumstances in which a monitor would be appropriate. And Scott, to your point, one of the components, of course, is whether or not the remedial improvements have been tested. And I think that's absolutely critical. If you look, for example, at the Airbus and the Ericsson cases just in the last six months or so, these are both very substantial cases that, that occurred with very different results. Um, the Airbus case, which was, I think, about $4 billion globally, you know, did not result in a monitor. I mean, that's, that's astonishing if you think about it. And you sort of think back to other cases uh, that are sort of large-scale FCPA-related cases, you know, there are monitors in all of those cases, not in the Airbus matter. And I think people should pause and sort of think about that and say, well, how is that possible? And then you look at the Ericsson case, and in the Ericsson case, um, which was, you know, over a billion dollars, I think about $2 billion. And you look at that case and you say, well, what happened there? Because there actually is a monitor. And if you look at the relevant considerations portion of the resolution for Ericsson, it indicates very nearly the same language, uh, Scott, that you were just pointing out, which is in this guidance, which was that while there had been a series of um, remedial efforts made with regard to Ericsson, that they had not been such that they were able to be tested. This language here in the guidance that you were just citing clearly plays a very important factor in the government making assessments about whether you're going to get a monitor or not. Um, And so what are they? So to to your point in terms of elaboration on, on what those requirements are, I don't think that it's anything surprising or secret or, you know, unique. I think when they talk about testing, what they mean is that the remedial efforts need to have occurred early enough in the process that they are subject to various kinds of review, testing, and assessment. And so things like, for example, 
being able to evaluate and look at hotline statistics. How many are coming in? How many are anonymous? Are they going up? Are they going down? What does that, you know, what does the company sort of take from, from that analysis? Also, uh, training statistics. You know, there have been remedial efforts. Maybe there's a new policy. Have people been trained on it? What does that look like? You know, what's sort of the evaluation of that investigation statistics? And then more, more proactive kind of testing, including uh, internal audit, uh, taking a look, for example, I know a number of clients of mine will do high spender uh, internal audits. So they will look at the highest spenders for gift travel entertainment in a particular region, and they will subject uh, those particular employees to an evaluation by internal audit to make sure that whatever that high spend category is that they're in, that whether it's uh, for travel or gifts for, for customers or the like, that those all are appropriate within the compliance program restrictions, uh, that the paperwork is filed on time, that it's accurate, that it's appropriately approved by supervisors, if it needs to be escalated for approval, that it was. So a, a detailed audit. Sometimes it's done by internal audit, sometimes externally. Uh, they'll ask uh, for people to do that review for them. Um, you know, also risk assessments. Once a company has put in various remedial measures dealing with particular circumstances of an investigation, doing a root cause analysis, looking for ways to improve the program, uh, you know, fill in any gaps that might exist, uh, then looking to see whether or not that that's actually mitigating those risks and doing a, another assessment to take uh, stock of it. You know, uh, constant sort of reviewing and revising of policies and procedures to make sure that not only you're sort of filling gaps, but you're also addressing. Uh, whether there are any kind of you know uh, enhancements, including by the way refinements that actually may uh, pull back a bit in terms of uh, the restrictions to, to make sure that this is actually moving at the speed of business. Because what you don't want to do is have a compliance program that is so suffocating that ultimately people uh, end up avoiding it and not actually doing what they're supposed to be doing. It's almost worse to set up policies and procedures that you know nobody's going to follow as opposed to actually coming up with something that's reasonable and measured and how you're doing it. And so those kinds of things, and particularly internal audit conducting desk reviews, looking at, for example, doing a third-party audit of the diligence process to make sure, for example, that third parties are being proposed in a timely way, that red flags are being appropriately chased down. You know, all of these kinds of things that give you the ability to go to the government and say, not only did we make enhancements to our compliance program in light of finding from an investigation, but we did so in a timely way that permitted us the ability before the resolution to come back to the government and say, not only did we make the changes, but we actually can show you that they're working. That's, I think, a critical difference. And the one thing I would you know, counsel companies on, because I've, I've seen it happen, is that a company can be so busy with their, you know, their external uh, lawyers and consultants, you know, forensic accountants and investigators chasing down the facts of a pending investigation that sometimes people don't realize that in parallel to that, people need to be thinking about the compliance component because of exactly what you just said, Scott, because that will ultimately matter when it comes time for the resolution and can have a dramatic impact on whether uh, the company in the wake of a resolution has a monitor or just self-reporting. Well, that was, uh, that was great information. You know, that you hit upon a couple of points that I, I don't want to follow up on. One, it's just more of a remark, you know, between the Ericsson case and, uh, you know, Donska Bank. I, I'm not sure the Scandinavian countries warrant the pale yellow color coding anymore on Transparency International's heat map. They seem to be uh, moving toward red. But you also had something uh, 
I want to kind of follow up on, talked about high spend analysis. There's so many risk assessments underlying ethics and compliance programs and any corruption uh, compliance programs. You know, they, they focus on third parties, high risk relationship types, you know, looking at high risk geographies, you know, the extent to which third parties or executives may be focused or dealing directly or indirectly with people who meet the definition of, of foreign officials. But you don't as often see focus on high risk employees and executives. You know, obviously that's the other, you know, it's human beings <laughs> doing bad things. And yet, you know, the, the high risk employees just doesn't seem to necessarily get the same level of attention as some of these other risk factors. I, I think you're right. I mean, I think people definitely are focused on um, you know, some of the different components of the compliance program as opposed to necessarily individual employees. Although certainly I've seen more clients having tailored training focused on uh, particular gatekeeping functions or other high-risk functions so that they are making sure that they're speaking to the right people about the right specific topics relevant to what they do for the company. So that certainly, I think, is a change. And I could see, and I have seen on occasion, some companies focusing their audit, not necessarily purely on you know a, a broad-based effort to look at, for example, third-party due diligence or reimbursement-related issues, but you know some are now on occasion looking at employees as uh, sales managers, for example, and subjecting them to the reviews. But I think more often than not, uh, companies continue to sort of keep that kind of oversight or focus really tailored to investigations. And so maybe this is an area where companies could start to think a bit more proactively from an audit perspective. So Chuck, corporate strategists employ SWOT analyses when evaluating different business situations, including acquisitions. And these analyses examine the, the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats of the business situation you know, that's under consideration. How important is it that fraud and corruption be part of that, you know, weakness and threat analysis that's being performed? You, you simply have to include it. My experience is most companies nowadays do include some component of this, at least for significant transactions. The challenge here is that, you know, sometimes companies will do this work and either, you know, they're handling some of it internally or even if it's external, it's really doesn't look to be that significant an issue. And so it it's, doesn't necessarily rate the same attention. I would suggest that based on my experience, that small transactions can cause just as much grief for a company as a large transaction. And by that, I mean, it has reputational harm. So it may not be the same financial component to it. The, the risk of financial harm is almost sort of the same with reputational, at least my experience with clients is that they care just as much, if not more so about their reputation than the pure dollars and cents of a deal. And, and by the way, in doing this kind of work, I will also say it has not been my experience that fraud and corruption to date in the, in the matters I've worked on in terms of M&A, uh, anti-bribery uh, and corruption due diligence, has actually killed the deal. I've actually not seen that happen. I'm sure it's possible. I'm sure it does occur. But more often, I actually see that what ends up happening is it may change the deal, it could impact the deal in a way that, you know, either the way it's structured or maybe there's a valuation component to it. It's not so much about whether you go forward with the deal or don't, uh, many times there, there are lots of other sort of factors involved, important factors that really 
from the business side of things are, is going to drive this transaction. So it's going to go forward regardless, but it allows you to go in eyes wide open based both on the financial component as well as the reputational issues. And I will say that you know, I've seen uh, cases both when I was at DOJ and also since I've been in private practice where they've moved forward with transactions in which there's an open uh, FCPA investigation or, or some other kind of investigation. So it's not about whether or not there's something that you find, but it's so that you go in and sort of understand what you're doing. And so, so from my perspective, you know, it's, it's an absolute must. And, uh, and it doesn't necessarily just because you're focused on it mean uh, the deal's not likely to go forward. My experience is that the deal most likely goes forward anyway, but it's about identifying what those risks are and having a game plan on day one to deal with them. And so in, in a case that I had in which there was a pending DOJ investigation, the transaction went forward anyway, but we had come up with a game plan, you know, after day one, after the, you know, the closing, to reach out to DOJ, say there's a new sheriff in town, we'd like to address the pending investigation. And in that particular circumstance, we were able to get the department to decline the matter based on you know, the presentations that we made to them. And they, they did it in a non-public way. And so the company was able to close the deal, get the value out of the deal, demonstrate to the department that you know, there's a new sheriff, there was good reason to decline the matter. And they ultimately did so in a non-public way, which saved the company from the reputational risks. So there's ways to go forward, but you got to look and you got to be eyes wide open about what the issues may or may not be. And if there are issues, then have a strategy for dealing with them as soon after the closing as you can. Now, you raised some great points there, Chuck. I mean, it's going into these things, eyes wide open, having the benefit of this information. You know, in my experience is similar to yours. I, you know, I've been involved in a lot of these you know, FCPA diligence matters, very few, if any, cratered the deal, but it gave very important insight to the company in terms of what the risks may be associated with the proposed transaction. You know, also then, you know, gave them the ability to try to negotiate around it. These things have a cost associated with them. Okay, that's, so we're going to have to pay extra attention to this issue now. We're going to have to be hyper-focused on post-merger integration with regard to the ethics and compliance program. That has a price tag associated with it. You know, so maybe there's a pricing concession coming out of it. Exactly. You know, in appropriate circumstances, there's an agreement to indemnify you know, the, the buyer for whatever costs may be associated, including penalties, you know, with resolving the matter. And so I've certainly you know, seen those kinds of agreements, but you can't make those agreements unless you actually know what the facts are. So it's key to understanding that. So, you know, kind of on the, the inverse of what we were just talking about on that same point, does failing to consider the fraud and corruption and SWOT analysis, does that undermine the perceived efficacy of the compliance program? <laughs> Absolutely. You know, about a decade ago, DOJ added to attachment C, which is the enhanced compliance program requirements that are, you know, pretty much ubiquitous with any kind of a plea agreement, deferred prosecution agreement, or non-prosecution agreement. So it's sort of, sort of the DOJ standard in terms of compliance programs. They added a mergers and acquisitions component to it. And that was done you know, more than a decade ago. And it was done on purpose, right? There was a recognition that there were enough FCPA-related matters coming out of the mergers and acquisitions context or investment context 
such that DOJ thought, well, this is important enough for us to include as one of the components of a compliance program that we think is important. So they've already spoken on this issue in a long time ago. And if you look at you know, past enforcement actions, you see that there continues to be circumstances in which company purchases another company or makes a major investment into a company only to find out later you know, that there are real problems there. And so it, it happens with a certain degree of, sort of regularity. And I've been in circumstances, in fact, in the last you know, six months, I've been in a meeting with DOJ in which you know, they asked about what exactly the company had done in terms of diligence not on sort of a third party, but on this company that they were looking to acquire that is now, as it turns out, problematic. And so they were asking very pointed questions about the diligence process and what was done pre-acquisition, as well as, Scott, to your point, which is sort of post-acquisition integration. So what did you do and how quickly did you do it and how thoroughly did you do it? And so these are, without a doubt, questions that will be asked. And the point is that you want to have good answers to that. I don't think there has to be standard of perfection. I think sometimes there is, but, you know, unfortunately, but I think that the government, I don't think that's always the case. I think you can speak to people who are reasonable there and say, we did the best we could, but you have to have the record to back that up. And if you say that, look, we asked the right questions, but we were lied to. We did uh, diligence, but, it, you know, by necessity, you know, pre-acquisition was limited. But, you know, as soon as we closed, we had a, uh, we had a game plan for day one for, you know, post-acquisition integration, uh, and we went to deploy that, uh, and we did it in a timely manner. But then maybe it turns out that you were lied to by the, the local folks in the, in the office or, you know, people are actively concealing it from the company. I mean, the more that you can do that and show that the, really so the acquiring company is a victim here in spite of its efforts, I think the better position the company is to seek a declination from the government or to get a more favorable form of resolution, to keep that resolution hopefully focused on the prior company as opposed to the acquiring company in terms of a resolution. So there, there are a number of things that it permits you to do, but if you don't do it, I certainly agree with you, Scott, that there will be sort of a perceived view that the company didn't take these issues seriously in the first, in the first instance and therefore you know, they really shouldn't be the beneficiary of some sort of deference or discretion by the government taken in their favor. Well, thanks, Chuck. So in the evaluation of corporate compliance programs guidance, the, it emphasizes the importance of risk tailoring and the application of, of lessons learned when considering a company's risk assessment program and, and the overall program design. So if a prosecutor concludes that a company's risk assessment process was not sufficiently tailored to their organizational risk and they didn't factor lessons learned into the program's design or refinement, does that potentially create a jaundice view of the overall program? So here I think the answer is it depends. It could. I think it would depend on the specific facts and circumstances of the situation. If it wasn't appropriately tailored, maybe at the time that it was being done, the particular issues that later came to light weren't obvious to a reasonable person, or maybe in terms of the lessons learned, some components of the lessons learned were integrated and that gap was filled, but maybe they missed something. Maybe they missed it because frankly, as part of the investigation that had occurred preliminarily, they didn't actually see those kinds of issues. So there may be good explanations for why it was that way, and I think the government may accept that. 
The challenge, however, and the issue that you just raised in terms of potentially creating a jaundice to the overall program is if the sort of the risk assessment was done in a, a way that wasn't so thoughtful, or even more importantly, in the lessons learned category, if there was either sort of no root cause analysis being done to figure out how did this problem happen and how are we going to make sure that we avoid this problem happening again, then I think you put yourself in a difficult position to be making those arguments to the government. You know, it's not just enough to sort of figure out what the problem is, but try to figure out mechanisms, including internal controls that are designed to prevent it from happening or at least create early detection warning signs so that it can be cut off earlier. And by that, I mean, when I was in the government, I remember people coming in and they'd say, well, we had this problem, whatever problem it was, problem X. And in order to deal with problem X, what we did was we have more training that told people not to do X. And, you know, my sense was, when I was in the government, I said, well, training people not to do X is fine, but doing more than that is what I think is expected, meaning how do you prevent X from happening even if you have an employee that is willing to you know, not listen to the training, sign a certification, and then engage in bad behavior? And so there are ways to do that, such as you know, segregation of duties so that there's more than one person making certain approvals, that there are appropriate escalations for approvals such that maybe you're pulling the decision-making out of a country or a region, having it be more centralized. There are basically processes that can be put in place and controls that can be put in place that help prevent it more than just relying on an employee deciding to do the right thing next time. And I think that's really where we talk about lessons learned and, and working out from the root cause analysis, what occurred, and then really designing processes, not just training, designed to prevent that from happening again, as well as potentially certain modules of an audit designed to go after that and look for it because you know this happened in the past, may happen in the future, and making sure that it's not happening as well as making sure that those new processes are actually being followed such that you can say, not only did we create new policies or procedures and controls, but then we tested them to make sure that they're actually being followed. That's where I think you can get a lot of credit and make a meaningful difference, but it's really independent of the circumstances. Now, you raised some really good points because training is one hallmark. There's nine others, and you can't, one-dimensional approach of just training on an issue presupposes that people are engaged, they're taking the training, they're listening, and they're inclined to, to follow it. There's got to be something more there, otherwise it's just a giant leap of faith. Is, oh, now we're good because we, we trained people and told them not to do that anymore. It's a, that's a, it's a really good point. So when the evaluation of corporate compliance programs was first released, it referred to the need to operationalize compliance. And then in the most recent update, it refers to operational integration. What advice would you give to companies who are seeking to operationalize their compliance program? And you know, what, what do they actually mean by that? So I think the key distinction here is really between what DOJ would refer to as paper program versus one that is actually working in practice. And I think it really ends up reflecting, if you look at that updated June 2020 guidance on the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, if you look at it at the very beginning, you know, it references the you know, long-held fundamental questions that have been built into the federal prosecution business organizations. Two of those three principles really touch on this issue. Fundamental questions that prosecutors are supposed to ask themselves about a company's compliance program in deciding what the right result is. And so one of them is whether or not the program is well-designed. 
And that's not so much this issue, whether it's well-designed or not. But really, questions two and three of these fundamental questions go right to the heart of this, which is, is the program being applied earnestly and in good faith? And number two, does the corporation's compliance program work in practice? And these are two questions that really get to the heart of whether or not the compliance program itself has actually been integrated from an operational perspective. And I think that's what you see kind of in this revision that just came out recently. And the whole point behind it, the idea behind it is, it's perfectly nice to have a code of conduct, various policies, procedures related to those policies and the like. But if you're not actually making sure that it's working, then I think the government is going to have real questions about two and three that I was just identifying. Are you actually applying it in good faith? Are you really trying to get this thing to work? And, you know, and does it in fact work? And here, when you take a look at the guidance that's coming out from the department, I think what they're asking companies to do and to take seriously is to put someone in charge, not just to make sure that you're operationalizing, as they say, but that somebody specifically has the responsibility for integrating these policies and procedures and doing that, for example, in ways that make it, from a control perspective, make it difficult to pursue certain activities having not followed those policies and procedures. Let me give an example. Before you can actually send a payment to a third party, that that third party has to be vetted. Now, the policy is going to say that, but if you set up certain controls in a way that accounts payable will not actually send money until this person is embedded, you can set that control up and that actually operationalizes and makes clear that not only is there a policy that requires the third party to be approved before it gets paid, but that functionally that actually can't happen because the way that the ERP system is set up and the rules are set up, that accounts payable simply won't do it regardless of you know, the desire of maybe a particular employee that's up to no good in you know, some region or country of the world that's engaged in this conduct that's in violation of the, of the policies and procedures. So, you know, an invoice won't get paid before a purchase order is issued. And the people actually look to make sure that the purchase order was issued before the invoice was, was sent to the company. So these are the kinds of processes that can actually be put into place that make sure that these policies that people are talking about are actually integrated into the system itself to help reinforce or bolster what's going on. And I think that's really what the government's looking for. So those are such important points that you make. You can't overstate the importance of integrating the program with the finance operation, the accounts payable, accounts receivable, procurement, making sure you've got three-party, three-point match process, requisitions, you know, purchase orders and, and disbursements. Those are such important things that really do force people to comply because ultimately the relationship can't continue if you can't make disbursements, if you can't onboard a new vendor relationship or a new customer because the finance department has been positioned as a control. Those are, I think, critically important points you just made. You know, just on the last question on the topic of operationalization, how important, uh, so how important is it for companies to demonstrate that they're following their own compliance program and foregoing business and exiting relationships when, when a customer or an employee or an intermediary won't follow the rules of the road or there are red flags that have been surfaced, but that they can't be readily resolved 
or resolve to the satisfaction of somebody. Always a litmus test, right? Is, you know, are you making the hard decisions? So how, how important is that? I think whether it actually happens in a given circumstance really depends on the specific facts there. For example, I, I would hope that foregoing business entirely would be pretty rare. Or getting out of a business or not going into a country or, or the like would be relatively rare. Exiting specific relationships is my bet. But as to whether or not uh, this decision-making process is an important one or not, absolutely true. You know, I have been in meetings with DOJ talking about the compliance program, and they will ask those exact questions, Scott. They will say, we'd like to know in the last year or the last three years, you know, how many third parties have you either rejected through your compliance program or sort of terminated relationships with based on you know, ongoing monitoring? Have you made decisions in the past X period of time to decide not to enter into a, a merger, an acquisition, or an investment, or engage in a particular transaction? They want to know that those hard decisions have been made in part because, and I think it's a lot easier with third parties, because if you say you have a robust third-party due diligence process, and the, the fact is that in five years, you've never rejected any third parties, it will make them wonder, well, how robust is that process? And it's a very difficult situation, by the way, to be in, because turning, like, if you have a lot of third parties that you've turned down, then it sort of raises its own questions, right? Which is like, well, why is it that so many of your employees think that they should be proposing these third parties? Is there is there a problem with tone or culture or training, et cetera? Or, you know, and so you want to be able to have enough to show that, that the program is robust, but not so much yet that there are problems to serve elsewhere. And it, it really is sort of a, a needle that you're trying to thread in those discussions that you ultimately have to have them with the department. But being able to point to at least some, hopefully there are a couple that you can point to is valuable, it's expected, and candidly, if you're in front of a DOJ or SEC, I think they'll ask you. The last thing you ever want to have happen, if you finish making a two-hour presentation about this world-class compliance program, and then somebody asks the question, how many relationships have you exited in the two years since you've implemented this platinum-level program? That The answer can't be zero. Right. Or if it is zero, then you have quick response to that, which is zero, but that's in part because, you know, we don't have that many third parties or we actually, you know, implemented significant training and some review processes before things get submitted. And so, you know, we sort of stop it on the front end. I would, but, but you're right. If the answer is just zero, there's no other sort of explanation for it. I think you could be in a very tough spot. Yeah, yeah. You've just wasted the last two hours, right? <laughs> Explaining how great your program is. Well, well, Chuck, this has been <laughs> exactly. terrific. Yeah, I always enjoy talking to you about this stuff. So it's just the first time I've recorded the conversation. So thanks very much for joining today, Chuck. Well, thanks so much for having me. Sure. So that was former DOJ fraud section attorney and Morrison Foster partner, Chuck DeRoss. This concludes this episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director and FDI Consulting's Forensic Litigation Consulting segment. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Fraud Eat Strategy when we'll hear from Association of Certified Fraud Examiners CEO and President Bruce Doris on why now is exactly the right time to perform a fraud risk assessment. If you have an idea on a fraud or corruption case topic or guest, 
you'd like to hear about on a future episode, email us at fraud eat strategy at fti consulting.com. Thanks for listening.